The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The Bible describes numerous occasions when God literally sent miraculous fire from heaven. In our present age of the church, an age characterized by mercy, God doesn't rain down fire and brimstone. Instead, he sends the convicting and purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. But once again, according to the book of Revelation during the period in the future, known as the Great Tribulation, God will grant fiery power once again to his two witnesses in Israel. I'm Christine Darg. In the Bible, in Revelation chapter 13, a chapter that's studied by many Bible scholars, we read that a person called a beast will perform great signs in the future, even causing fire to come down from heaven in full view of the people, and the inhabitants of the earth will be deceived. A false prophet will set up an idolatrous image of the beast, quite possibly a robot empowered with satanic or artificial intelligence. The prophecy continues in Revelation 13. The image will speak and cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Also, all people, great and small, rich and poor, will be forced to receive a mark on their hands or on foreheads so they can't buy or sell unless they possess the mark. While there are endless interpretations and speculations on this passage in Revelation 13, one of the most puzzling aspects of this prophecy is that God in his sovereignty will allow fire to fall from heaven as a great deceptive sign and wonder. God will allow people to believe this lying wonder because they have refused to repent. Unfortunately, this counterfeit miracle will be extremely convincing. The Bible described how the false prophets of Elijah's day were unable to call down fire from heaven. Only Elijah the prophet possessed that kind of power. And now we read about a coming beast with the power to manifest what Elijah once did. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God often manifested himself in fire. In fact, it was a matter of history that Yehovah, the God of Israel, had answered by fire. In fact, fire and the glory cloud were his hallmarks. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. And the Lord instructed Moses from a burning bush that wasn't consumed. God's presence was also seen in the dramatic pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. It's recorded in Leviticus 9.24 that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face downward. In Gideon's day in Judges 6.21, the angel of the Lord touched the sacrifice and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes.
In Judges chapter 13, the Lord did an amazing thing while Samson's parents watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 21 that King David built an altar to the Lord, and David called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Also, fire fell from heaven in Solomon's temple, and the great prophet Elijah had the power to call down fire from heaven on at least three occasions. These fiery judgments happen at a time of almost universal idolatry. For example, twice when companies of 50 men were sent to arrest Elijah on false charges, he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you. And immediately the fire of God fell from heaven and killed them all. The fire was miraculous and fell at the call of Elijah. Well, the Bible teaches that even this earth eventually will be purged by fire, but the earth won't be destroyed. It will be renovated, as it were, and refined by fire, as taught by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, today we need some fiery preachers, and I believe we still have a little bit more time to preach the gospel because there's nothing inevitable about the downward trend towards darkness and debauchery that we've been witnessing. You see, we mustn't forget that darkness was enlightened and broken 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that revival and reformation could happen again, even a new reformation. You say, how can I believe this when so many are saying, stop praying, judgment is inevitable? Well, I believe breakthrough is always possible because this word of God is like fire and it's light. And the same heavenly light and fire of God's word has the capacity today to effect another reformation. Because who can deny the power of this word? God's Word has its own efficacy, its own power to purify, to refine, and to penetrate darkness. Before Martin Luther rediscovered the truth of the gospel, much of the church was apostatized like it is today. Another reformation is vitally needed. Not only must we desperately return to God's moral law, but also the church must reject the scourge and era of replacement theology. There can be a new reformation if the church will repent of its blatant anti-Semitism and acknowledge our Hebrew origins rather than fighting against the God of Israel and against his end-time prophetic agenda to restore the people of Israel. You see, the tenor of Scripture is God's restoration of fallen mankind and salvation proceeding through the Jews. God began his redemptive plan with the Jews and their Messiah, and he will end with the restoration of the Jews and the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And he will rule the world for a thousand years from the throne of his ancestral father, David. When this truth of God's word is proclaimed, you see the glory, the light of God goes out 
And people are enlightened, and that's what happened in the Reformation. 500 years ago, the Word of God was rediscovered, and God was glorified. And if we're to experience another Reformation before the Lord returns, we'll have to encourage ourselves in the Lord and be strong in the Lord. One of the themes of our ministry is Daniel 11.32, which declares the people who know God will be strong and take action doing exploits. Darkness can be overcome again when we send forth the light. Now, in the New Testament, fire is an idiom of zeal. Individual tongues of fire rested upon the heads of the disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But when Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked if they could call down fire upon the Samaritans, Jesus rebuked them. He wasn't saying that Elijah had acted wrongly because God himself had sanctioned Elijah's ministry. But the rebuke of Jesus meant that there is a higher road in the gospel age, the spirit of love and grace by which his disciples should be motivated to save lives and not destroy lives. But also Jesus clearly warned of the reality of hellfire, the terrible agony of lost souls who go away forever into everlasting fire. There he said there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now during the tribulation period in Bible prophecy, the Lord's two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation will have power like flamethrowers. It says fire will proceed out of their mouths. Some theologians believe this description is an idiom for fiery words, but others say it should be taken literally. In fact, many theologians believe that one of the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 will be the fiery prophet Elijah himself, because Elijah never died, and he was associated with fire. So let's study the account that we find in 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah confronted the false prophets of Baal. Baal was the weather god and the chief of all the other false deities. The challenge of the day was, who is God? The pagan god Baal or Jehovah, the omnipresent God of Israel? Elijah asked the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Well, the world today needs to know who is the real God, just like in Elijah's day. And he stood alone against the false prophets and an ambivalent public. And yet he wasn't alone because he and God were the majority. You see, the land of Israel had been suffering a long drought due to the sins of the people. And the pressing question was, which God had the power to send the necessary rain? Elijah's challenge was that the God who answers by fire, he is God. Well, all the people agreed that Elijah's proposal was well-spoken. Now, the prophets of Baal fervently invoked their God they made a great spectacle of themselves, frantically 
dancing around their sacrifice, slashing and mutilating themselves until their blood flowed. But their idol was stone silent. They couldn't conjure up even a spark. Meanwhile, Elijah mocked them, saying, Why don't you call a little bit louder? After all, he's a god. Maybe he's occupied or gone on vacation. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Well, the false prophets were taunted and they prayed louder and they cut themselves more and blood gushed out more. And I'm sorry to say this same kind of savage ritual is still practiced amongst some of the false religious sects in the Middle East today. You can Google these tragic images during their religious festivals. Well, the false god was contemptible and unresponsive. The false prophets raved on trying to make something happen, but there wasn't a flicker of fire. 850 voices in full chorus cried, O Baal, hear us! But their idol was deaf and mute. Then Elijah stepped forward as if to say, Enough of this nonsense. Come near to me. It's my turn now. First, he repaired the altar that had been torn down. He gathered 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he dug a trench around the altar. He laid down firewood and the sacrifice. And then he ordered that four jars of water should drench the sacrifice and the firewood. Do it again, Elijah said. And they hauled water again. Then he ordered, do it a third time. And they hauled water the third time. And now the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Why did he mention those three names? Because God has established his covenant with those three Hebrew patriarchs. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What a prayer. I say amen. Now stand back. Whoosh! The fire of the Lord fell. This miraculous fire burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Let's stop for a moment and ask, why were even the stones of the altar consumed? Have you ever thought about that? This incident, according to the commentaries, is the last account on record in which God accepted a sacrifice offered on a patriarchal altar. You see, about a century before this, when King Solomon had finished praying during the dedication of the first temple in Jerusalem, supernatural fire had descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But Mount Carmel wasn't Jerusalem. So one commentary explained that the destruction of the stones on Mount Carmel was a sign that patriarchal high places were finished 
and that all Israel should worship at the Levitical altar at Jerusalem in the temple. This is so interesting to me. Okay, so let's return to the miraculous scene on Mount Carmel. When all the people saw this great demonstration of fire falling from heaven and burning up everything, even the altar, they fell prostrate on their faces. And they cried in unison, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And guess what? The point I want to make today is that the very same God who answered by fire is the God of Israel today, the God of the Jews, and the God of the Christians. He's the same. He's the real God, and He's still almighty. He's slow to anger, but when he does get angry, watch out. And the world is going to see a demonstration of his anger and retribution in the future. In the soon coming Ezekiel War that's described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So, just as the God of Israel showed up big time to confirm the word of his servant Elijah and to get his people off the fence, he has promised to fight in the last days for the Jewish people who've been regathered and restored to the land of Israel. And when he does, there's going to be firepower. And there won't be one unbeliever in the land of Israel after the smoke and the dust clear. Israel will no longer be a secular state. They will all proclaim like the people did in Elijah's day, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the one and only God. After the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the people knew for certain the identity of the true God. And the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that in the last days, that showdown is coming in the near future on the mountains of Israel. Yes, the Bible says, when enemy armies decide to invade, regathered Israel, God's fury will come up in his face and he will rain down fire and terror on the invaders. They'll be decimated, but tiny Israel will be miraculously saved. That's what this Bible teaches. It's all foretold in this holy book. And all the nations will know that the God of Israel is alive, he's God. And all imposters claiming to be God will be humiliated. Hallelujah. Elijah's encounter was like a preview of the great showdown to come in the future. The United Nations and Israel's enemies should learn in advance from this, but unfortunately they've rejected the truth of the Bible. However, many individual Muslims are getting saved through dreams and visions, and they're learning, and we as individuals can learn many personal lessons from Elijah's great encounter. First of all, I want to point out that Elijah knew he was on the winning side. In his spirit, he was confident in his God. He was assured of victory in his spirit. He knew God and was therefore strong and able to accomplish exploits. And when we truly believe, we'll be victorious because the battle belongs to the Lord. And if we believe it, we've already won half the battle. 
Second lesson is this. Please notice that Elijah didn't act unilaterally. He didn't act presumptuously or willfully. He prayed to God, answer me, answer me, because I'm your servant and I'm doing this at your command. A third lesson is we can learn that Elijah's weapon wasn't fire, really. It was prayer. Never forget that. He prayed, hear me, O Lord, hear me, so that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. Well, in vain, the false prophets leapt around in their savage rituals, cutting themselves, and their idol failed, was powerless. But at the prayer of Elijah, the heavens were opened, not first with the rain, that came later, but the God of Israel revealed himself in the glory of his fire. With Elijah, there was no hocus pocus. Nothing was done in secret or under cover, no sleight of hand. The fire fell downward from heaven. Well, the commentaries challenge us to be bold like Elijah. We must believe in the victory of our cause if we want to see another reformation. And most of all, we must use the weapon of prayer and believe that the heavens are open and God will rain down his mercy, salvation and healing as we pray, healing upon broken hearts and broken lives. Now, a fourth lesson for us is this. The prophets of Baal failed, but they were persistent. And shouldn't we believers in the true God be persistent and make fervent supplications? Because God will answer Diligence and zeal are characteristics of those who belong to the one true God. For example, Jacob wrestled all night with the angel, and at daybreak he prevailed. Now let's consider the exciting possibility of the reappearance of the prophet Elijah, the prophet of fire, in the end times. Over in Revelation chapter 11, God appoints his two witnesses to prophesy 1,260 days. They'll be clothed in sackcloth. And why two witnesses? Well, it's a Bible precept that everything must be established, not by one witness, but by two or three witnesses. Verse 5 reveals if anyone tries to harm God's two witnesses, Fire will proceed from their mouths and devour their enemies. Many commentaries say that this is most likely a cross-reference to the Acts of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, where he calls down fire from heaven to destroy his enemies. Now, many question whether or not such fire from the mouths of the two witnesses is to be taken literally. Like a horror movie, I can envision those two prophets dressed in sackcloth and with flashing mouths like flamethrowers. And Revelation 11.5 does specifically say, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Some commentaries surmise that the reference is to the fire of their words, words which refine and purify and convince some. Perhaps it's an idiom like the proverbial coals of fire heaped on sinners' heads, condemning those 
who reject their testimony. And there's a figure of speech found in Jeremiah 5.14 where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I will make my words in your mouth fire and I'll make this people wood and it shall devour them. And there's another figure of speech in which the Jews have explained the communication of their doctrines and traditions. They say that teachings have proceeded out of the mouths of rabbis like sparks of fire, jumping from one mouth into the mouth of another. Well, verse 6 of Revelation 11 also says that the two witnesses will have power to shut up the heavens so that it won't rain during the time that they're prophesying. Again, this sounds like the ministry of Elijah because he had power to decree a drought as a judgment. And verse 6 continues, And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Now that sounds like the judgmental powers entrusted by God to Moses, whom many scholars believe will be one of the two witnesses along with Elijah. Now, of course, we can't say for certain who are the two witnesses, but time will tell because all of God's word will be fulfilled. One of the arguments made for the reappearance of Elijah is this. Just as John the Baptist ministered in the spirit of Elijah as the herald of Jesus, so the prophet Elijah is expected to return to earth to help to prepare the way of the second coming of Jesus, Yeshua. Well, for sure, these are momentous days to study and to ponder end-time Bible prophecy. I want to encourage you to keep looking up for the Lord, but also doing the exploits of the Lord, occupying until he returns, for he's coming soon. And now is the time to win as many souls as possible. But perhaps you don't feel you're ready for the Lord's return. Now is the time to get ready. We only have today. We're not promised tomorrow. The Hebrew scriptures declare that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the New Testament, the apostles didn't hesitate to say that that name of the Lord is Jesus, Yeshua. For as Acts 4.12 declares, there's salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. The Bible promises you shall be saved. So I pray for anyone in doubt right now. Hear me, O Lord, hear me and show that you are God and that you are causing us in these last days to repent and return to you. Can you say amen? Meanwhile, the fellowship of like-minded believers is very important, and we can stay in touch through the social media and also at our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our electronic newsletter, Exploits, at our website, all our previous videos are available for viewing around the clock, as well as an archive of articles on end-time topics, faith, and healing. Now you can download our free Jerusalem Channel app to watch our videos 
on your mobile phone or tablet. Our app also offers daily Bible readings as well as details of our upcoming events in the Holy Land. And so until next time, I'm always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha, I'm Christine Dorick. Shalom. The Apostle Paul gave us the inspiring imagery of running a good race in life, much as these 3,000 participants in the annual Jerusalem Marathon. Lots of things are happening these days in Israel's ancient capital, and we're here with the Jerusalem Channel to keep you informed of the fast-paced events and news through our daily website updates and regular video reports and biblical teachings. To continue this viewer-supported ministry, we need your help. Please become a part of the Jerusalem Channel by donating. Just click the Donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. You can also donate by check to our U.S. address or our U.K. post office box. We're here to anticipate that one day soon we'll witness thousands running joyfully through the streets of the Holy City to welcome King Messiah.